You're listening to TIP. Hey, how's everyone doing out there? So on today's show, we have one of the biggest names in finance, Mr. Bill Miller. In the past, Bill has been named the greatest money manager of the decade by Morningstar and part of the Power 30 by Smart Money, and he's a member of the All-Century Investing Team by Barron's. When Bill was the chief investment officer for Leg Mason, he managed over $75 billion. And today, Bill is the owner of Miller Value Partners. And I think you're really going to get a lot out of this conversation because we talk about the recent pullback in the global equity markets. We talk about commodities and we even talk a little bit about cryptocurrencies. And so I have no doubt you guys are going to enjoy this conversation with the extremely intelligent Bill Miller. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. So I'm here with Bill Miller. Always such a pleasure to have you on the show, Bill. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day to be with us. It's always just such an honor to have you here. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Preston. I'm happy to do it. You do a great show. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Well, the story that I think everybody's talking about is this inflation growth, the bond sell-off, the tax cuts. Uh, a little over a year ago, whenever we talked, it was probably about 14 months ago, you had suggested that you agreed with Ray Dalio and some other guys that were saying that they thought that the, that the bond market had hit his bottom in the summer of 2016. And you even told us on the show last time that you had a small short position on bonds. And so far, that has been an incredible call. And I'm kind of curious how you see that continuing to mature. Do you think that that trend is going to continue or do you see it kind of hitting a peak at this point? Uh, yeah, I still have the, the short position. It's, it's bigger now. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think that um, it all depends on the data. It all depends on inflation and economic growth. And the trends that we see or that I see are that uh, it's likely to be the case that, that both of those, well, certainly inflation is likely to have some upward uh, upward pressure on it over the next couple of years. And that and bonds are still uh, still too cheap, or too cheap in the sense of um, uh, yields are too low. Bond yields are too low, in my opinion. And I think that they're going to have to move higher. But uh, over the next couple of years, I, they could move into the move into the force. And I think that, um, you know, I think Europe, by the way, is about 12 to 18 months behind the Fed. So uh, I'm actually probably going to put a, a reasonably solid short position on in German two-year uh, in the not-too-distant future. That's, I think that's going to move up to about where our two-year is in the next two years. You, you said you think it's going to potentially go up to 3.3% on the yield by the end of the year. Is that, did I hear that correctly? Well, I, I, think, that, I think that we have the, the, the direction is higher on the, on the yields. I don't have any special uh, insight into exactly how high when, when I look at the inflation numbers that we see, and and the, the Fed still isn't at its inflation target. Uh, and typically, again, when when inflation starts up, uh, it, it tends to move fairly slowly in the in the first in the first couple of years. So I think that I think the bond bear market will be benign. But we got to I think we got to three I think around three and a quarter in 2013 during the taper tantrum, and that's you know that, that's a reasonable target I think. Interesting. So in the past, we have seen the Fed say one thing and then do another. And most recent, back in 2016, when you saw the 50% correction, and all the talks about tightening stopped, and they became a lot more accommodating. Do you think that if we should again experience a significant correction, 
that we will see a similar pattern of them becoming a lot more accommodating once again. I think the Fed has been fairly clear that they are what they call data driven. Uh, the, the question is, how do they how do they assess the data? How do they weight the data? Back when the market sold off in two thousand and and uh, 16 that you know in the first in the first six weeks of that that was because of uh what people thought were legitimate concerns about china about russia stan fisher had talked about four tightenings in 2000 in, in that particular year so i think i think that the market got got um spooked by by those macro things but uh i think i think the fed is unlikely to change its its approach to to the gradual tightening as long as the data is consistent with what i think we're seeing right now so i mean i don't, I don't see any risk to, to recession, and I think we're in a global synchronized recovery. But I think that uh, the real question is going to be the inflation rate. So our real rate is going to be moving higher. So let's equate this to the stock market then. So last time we talked, you said the impact of rising rates on the stock market was highly dependent on the speed at which that bond sell-off would occur. And based on that idea, do you think that the speed of the bond sell-off is making equity ownership concerning right now? So we've seen the 10-year move I don't know, uh, what, 30, 40 basis points just in the last month or two? I mean, it's moving pretty fast. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in hearing whether you think that it's moving a little too quick. The broader picture, and I think probably what, what ended that very long period of very low volatility in the 15 straight months of an up market is that we're, we're shifting to a regime where the, where the rest of the world is probably going to be moving where the U.S. is right now in the sense of in the sense of the easy money, the QE that we see, especially in Europe, uh, is uh, is going to be ending, I think, this year. And and we're in a different. We're going to be moving into a different monetary regime, one that's going to be much less accommodative than we've seen in the past. And I think that'll probably lead to greater uncertainty and, and probably a, a return to what called normal volatility in the overall market, and not the extreme um, quiet that we've had in 2013. Recall that when we had that taper tantrum. That was the first year since the 2008 crisis that we actually had money go into equity funds. And uh, the market was up 30% that year. And that was because people were actually starting to lose money in bond funds. And I think that we're close to that right now. We've actually seen, we actually shockingly saw inflows into our, into our main equity fund during that decline, which is very unusual. Some people could say that's you know that's that's complacency. I I think it's people have actually seen with that particular fund whenever it has a, a you know a sharp pullback, it's typically been a good buying opportunity. But I would I would expect that um, the overall direction, the path of least resistance for stocks, is higher this year unless that that pace of interest rate increases you know moves very quickly. You recall that during the 1990s had a huge uh, bull market and the 10-year averaged six six percent that whole decade. So you know 2.8 or 2.9 percent is not a lot of competition. Uh, for stocks. Yeah, no, I, re- I remember you addressing that last time. And it was a fantastic point. It's like, if we could get the 6% uh, percent on the 10-year back then and go to a PE ratio way higher than where we are now, what was it, 35 back then? I think the median, the median PE, well, it all depends. We, we, the, the S&P, you know, PE got to, got to very high, very high levels in the late 1990s. So I, I guess, Bill, is this your way of saying that this recent pullback, this 10% pullback that we just saw that was very abrupt, was a buying opportunity? I think, I think any, any pullback in market history is a, you know, is a buying opportunity in the sense of lower prices are generally better for long-term investors than higher prices and higher valuations are. But this type of pullback, especially, is you know, I think you'd have to distinguish between you know, between I call them you know, technical, cyclical, and secular declines in the market, 
or things that are caused by that. So th this decline is, is just purely, I think, the fact that we had an extremely uh, <clears throat> low volatility period. And then we also had the 15 straight months of the market going higher. And that made it vulnerable to any, I think, any type of dislocation. So yeah, and, and a, you know, eight or 10% decline in the market. Uh, you, you, you normally see that every, you know, every 12 to 15 months. And uh, I, I think that's, that's, this one is perfectly reasonable given the underlying conditions, I think are, are very solid. And valuations, again, I think for the overall market, you know, call it 17 times now in this, in this pullback are, are, are not demanding when you look at where rates are. Interesting. So, Bill, recently the White House announced this 1.5 trillion fiscal spending plan. And even though it's not effective as of today, the market still anticipates uh, more growth and in turn higher rates. So what are your thoughts on the magnitude of this? Do you think that this goes to the narrative of an even higher bond sell-off? Or how do you see this effect, if any? Well, this, you know, if the supply of bonds is going to be, well, I'll just say the supply of government securities, so it's, you know, it's bills and notes and bonds, is going to be considerably higher. Yeah, that, that other things equal would mean that the prices would be, would be lower. You, know, you, you also have this, this uh, I think, um, point that's been raised by, especially by Ricardo Caballero at MIT, that one of the things that precipitated the, the 2008 collapse was a shortage of safe assets. And that, and that the, the Wall Street, you know, engineering uh, wizards got around and if there weren't enough AAA assets, they're going to make, they're going to create some. And I think that, I think there's a lot of truth to that in the sense of, especially with the new liquidity requirements for banks and high quality asset requirements, there's a lot of demand out there for, you know, for what are perceived to be safe assets. So yeah, other things equal, a trillion five in, in deficits would lead to, would lead to higher bond yields and, and lower bond prices. But I don't think it's, I don't, first of all, it's a, it's a ways off. Uh, and then second, we, I mean, we had a surplus in January. Obviously, that's going to be temporary, but um, I, I don't think it's going to be material to the overall supply-demand picture. What will be material to prices would be inflation rates. So you're talking about how the banks in the U.S. are well-capitalized. A lot of the changes from the 2008 crisis really kind of uh, made those assets a whole lot safer than they used to be. But when we look over to Europe, we see organizations like Bridgewater that has a fairly substantial short position on Italian banks and some other locations. Do you have as much concern as, as some of these other people that are putting their money where their mouth is and saying that, that these banks over in Italy and the rest of Europe are as risky as, as they think? I think it depends on the, it depends on the individual banks and the, and the conditions in the individual countries. So we actually have in the hedge fund, we've had a position in Credit Suisse for you know, the past year or so, because I think the CEO there is doing a good job. They are there. They raise capital. They don't have any capital issues. Uh, the strategy is sound. But I think I think it's on, on a case by case basis. That's you know, that it certainly could be the case that there's weakness. Deutsche Bank is doesn't act well in the overall market, for example. Interesting. So let me just shift gears here a bit. We have people like Jeff Gunlock, who we follow really closely here on the podcast, talking about how commodities might be place to be here in 2018 and onwards. And he's been very vocal about it. I'm curious what you think about that statement, but also how you see commodities in general. The commodities super cycle is over. And I think that lasted as, it, as they tend to do, you know, you know, over five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 years. You know, commodities in a global synchronized recovery, demand for commodities is going to go higher. You know, if, if you look at the CRB index, for example, uh, it's been rising. You know, it, it, it bottomed, I think, in 2015. It's been kind of on a you know, on an irregular path higher. 
So I, I wouldn't disagree that the that commodities will you, know, you should catch a bid in here. Uh, again, it all depends on which you know which commodity. I think I think oil, for example, is has probably uh, you know seen a peak in the in the mid sixties. We got or the low to mid sixties. You got the U.S. shale production is rising very rapidly right now. Uh, but I think it's, you know, each commodity has its own supply demand uh, supply demand cycle. Just so people understand your thought process when you would think through investing in a commodity, it really just goes straight to supply demand. I know that's what Jim Rogers suggests, that the best way to invest in commodities is you got to really understand that global supply and demand. Would you agree with that? Yes, I, I think you know that mo- most investors in commodities or most traders in commodities are, are uh, uh, chart-oriented and, and highly uh, focused on tr- the trends, short and intermediate-term trends. And I think that's that's because the commodities can tend to be extremely volatile, and you can put a lot of leverage on if you want to. So, you know, getting getting the right side of that is uh, those trends is is important. But un- at the end of the day, the price is set by supply and demand. So the last time we had you on the show, uh, we asked you about a book you would have recommended, and you suggested The Reminiscence of a Stock Operator. And having read that book, uh, the approach is very similar to momentum investing and how you can be on the right side of a, of a trend. And similar to what you just described there with investing in commodities, I'm just curious how much of that type of approach you mix into your own investing approach, because I know that you're a very hardcore value investing, deep value investing kind of guy. But do you use moving averages and those kind of things to help manage the risk of, of maybe catching a falling knife? Well, yes, I, I would say also with respect to, to the reminiscence of a stock operator, I, I thought that and I think that is a, a tremendously valuable book, but not because of the way in which uh, Jesse Livermore necessarily invested or traded in the short run on a momentum basis. Um, it's much more, I think, important from the standpoint of, of uh, market psychology, behavioral finance, uh, those kinds of insights that are, that are important. And, and again, I think the most important thing in, in that entire book is his point about the big money is made in the big move. So most people aren't really thinking about that. They're thinking about much shorter term, much shorter term moves. But to get to the questions that, you know, my, my, my son who works with me just got, he's got a CFA, but he just got his uh, CMT, his Chartered Market Technician designation too. And I think when we, we think about charts or we think about um, momentum, what we're really thinking about is, is trying to, what we think charts do is they help you visualize fundamentals and they help you visualize the, the, the supply demand balance at a price. That's, that I think is valuable to take into, take into consideration. Um, and when we do, we do use that. Uh, we, don't, we don't make uh, you know, investment decisions based purely on a, you know, on, on a chart pattern. It's it's based on fundamentals, but we use that we use that supply demand as evidenced in the charts to maybe help our timing from time to time. And again, it also helps us to understand if if the if the, the stock or whatever we're buying is is bond is consistently moving against us, uh, and we think the fundamentals are positive, we have to go back and take a look again at the at the fundamentals to make sure we haven't made a mistake. That's very very interesting, and I don't know if it's too much to ask or if you would share this with our listeners. Could you be more specific about which techniques you use? Do, you, for instance, use moving averages? Yeah, uh, you know, it's 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 a it's a combination of moving averages. We look at we look at the ten day. The, I, I tend to, to look at the ten day, the fifty day, and the two hundred day to get a picture of that. And what you know also is because other people tend to actually make decisions on moving averages, you can get a sense about where they're coming in. You know, if you look at if you look at uh, you know, 10% corrections or, or corrections to the 200-day moving average, I think something like 
80% of those things going back 20 years have gone through that 200 day and an undercut low before, before bouncing. But yeah, we, we, we will look at that. And usually then if, if something like, you know, something like Bitcoin, when it, when it went through the 10 day on the upside, then that, that again, because so, so many people are using, using that to time those, uh, the, especially the crypto assets, that, that told us we're probably going to see additional, additional demand, additional demand coming in. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So the whole Bitcoin piece is just red hot with discussion on the media, with everyone, and you have been a... uh, a person that I've read about in the news uh, relating to crypto. So I'm kind of curious to hear your your position on this because we read a book, Stig and I read a book about crypto back in 2015. And after I had read the book, I took a small position in crypto just because I thought it was, I just thought it was interesting. You have evidently also taken a position back in 2015 is what I read. And this has been a tremendous position for you. 
what originally got you interested in this? And then I would be curious to kind of hear your thoughts on the recent run up and, and run down in, in, in Bitcoin specifically. Sure. Well, I, you know, I, I forget when I first when I first became aware of this. It wasn't in 2008 or nine when it was, you know, down at, you know, pennies on the pennies on the dollar. It was somewhere in the 2000 and I want to say 14, probably 2015 uh, time frame. Uh, and I then uh, read Nicholas Popper's Digital Gold, which I thought was, uh, you know, a, a useful picture and a history of the, you know, of it. And then um, I heard Wences Casares, who give a talk on on Bitcoin. And he was, I thought, very convincing about it in the, in the sense of understanding what its, what its potential uh, could be under a, a set of circumstances. And Wences's view was that you just don't see this kind of technological development with this kind of potential come along very often. And he thought it was a, would be useful for people to put 1% of their liquid net worth in it and understanding that anybody could, have, could afford to lose 1% of their you know, of their net worth. And I thought that was good advice then. I think it's, I think it's, it's good advice now. Uh, Bitcoin is unusual in that it's, it's much less risky now than it was 10 years ago or, or five years ago. And the, because there's, the ecosystem has been, uh, is, is building out. We've got a lot more, you know, uh, I'd say I just, it's, on, it's on a much more firm foundation than it was when it was uh, a bunch of, I'd say, uh, libertarian anti-Fed people and, and, um, and, and techno geeks. But I think it's I think it's it's still it's the very early days. As I've, as, as I've told people when they tell me that I've been, I've been a Bitcoin believer, I'm not I'm not a Bitcoin believer. I'm sure not a Bitcoin evangelist. And I'm not even a Bitcoin believer. I'm a bit, but I am a Bitcoin observer. My, my cornerstone observation is that Bitcoin is following a, a very classic path for disruptive innovations that have ex, uh, exceptional uh, secular possibilities going back to, you know, printing press, railroad boom. Uh, electricity, radio in the in the 20s, you know, and then more recently, obviously, the internet, the internet boom. And, and when I when again, I'm an investor in Bitcoin. I'm not a trader in Bitcoin, and so uh, the decline for me was, you know, it was costly because I have a you know a decent position in in Bitcoin. But it, it, it's to me, this is a something I'll I'll pay attention to if something happens fundamentally that that is uh, that can halt or reverse. Bitcoin, and that can that could be regulatory, or it could be technological, or when it reaches a price that I think begins to discount the potential out there. But you know, it's I, it's I consider it right now probably, and just to go back to Nathaniel um, Popper's book, the best the best thing I think of it as is a, as an uncorrelated store of store of value the way that the way the gold is. What do you think the potential is for the market cap of something like Bitcoin? Is the market cap comparable to gold? Well, gold is, you know, gold is about seven, seven and a half trillion or, or thereabouts. So I would, I would think that something in the, a, a perfectly reasonable thing, given, given the way technology penetrates and the way, the way some of Bitcoin's advantages over gold are, something in the $700 billion range would be, uh, you know, would be, would be certainly reasonable. That's what, 10 times, sort of seven times probably where it is or six times where it is. Right now, but but you know you, you couldn't rule out. I, I certainly couldn't rule out a hundred thousand of Bitcoin or even five hundred thousand of Bitcoin, depending on what how it evolves and how the use cases evolve. The thing to remember about about Bitcoin, and also I think um, if your listeners uh, look up uh, Brian Arthur on the internet and read some of his work on path dependence and lock in in technology, but one of the points that Brian makes is that technologies once they reach a certain level of penetration. 
superior technology really can't do much about it in the, in the sense of there's, you have inferior technologies all the time. Going back to the QWERTY keyboard, you know, on a typewriter, or or more recently when when the internet was getting going, people pointed out that that the TCP/IP protocol was a really really a bad and problematic thing. And I remember Bill Gates saying that that uh, you know that that they, that they could develop a much better protocol than that and a much more effective one. But it didn't matter because that had already won. Same with the beta beta and VHS. So the fact that Bitcoin um, is you know has a lot of issues with it doesn't mean that it, it won't actually fulfill what many people think it could do. And understand also that because it's open source software, any, anything that the community really, this 51% community decides is, is uh, something to have, then they can create it. So right now, you know, one of the problems with Bitcoin is the, um, is the speed of the transactions and the cost of transaction. But this, this new Lightning Network, which has been developed, it looks like that's going to solve that problem. So I, I think that there's, it's a very complex area and having a strong view one way or the other is, uh, is likely to, I think, make you, make you biased uh, when, when it comes to evaluating what's happening. Yeah, that's a really important point. So you're looking at the, the, your argument is really the network effects and that the fact that once these network effects really kind of set in, you think that it has, you know, you're, you're still holding and you still think it has upside potential, but you're holding those beliefs fairly loosely. And you think that that's probably one of the most important parts probably for somebody investing in this is that they don't get too pulled in one way or the other, that they keep their, their mind open to the possibilities of how it could turn out? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, I've been kind of surprised at the, I, I'd say the strong views of people who, of, of very, you know, very um, eminent people in the financial community, the very strong views they have about, you know, it, it doesn't engage my emotions quite the way it apparently does does other people. I'm, I'm trying to look at it dispassionately and, and, and critically. So let me ask you this, because to hold, because I mean, this went clear up to 20,000. We saw the price go down to, I think it was 5,000, 6,000 just recently. Uh, and now it's back up to 10,000. I mean, this is like the wildest roller, roller coaster ride ever. How are you able to manage your emotions in this so well? Because you said that it's just down to the fundamentals. If, if the government changes their position on it or from a technological standpoint, something changes, then you'd be a seller at that point. But if not, you're just going to continue to to ride the wave, even though the wave is like a cat five hurricane. So I'm kind of curious. The question is, is how do you how do you manage your emotions through something like that? Maybe because I was dropped on my head when I was a baby. So I don't have that, <laughs> I don't have that, that, um, that visceral reaction that, that many people do. I've always thought that you know, lower prices made assets more attractive, other things equal, and higher prices made them less attractive. But, you know, Amazon went down over 95% in, in, in three years, but it, tur- it turned out fine. And I think that the real question for me on this kind of stuff is, Buffett has made a comment that, that in, with respect to stocks, that if you can't, can't stand to see your stocks drop 50%, peak to trough, then you should, probably shouldn't be in tr- stocks because they can do that. And I think that's the same thing with Bitcoin. Its, its um, volatility has been greater for all kinds of different reasons. But in Bitcoin, I'd say if you can't, if you can't stand to see it drop 70 or 80 percent, then you probably shouldn't be, it, be in it. And I think most people that kind of trade these things trade them uh, exactly wrong, which is when they'll, they'll, they'll buy them on a spike or they'll, they won't buy it when the price is flat and going sideways for a while. They wait till it goes up and then they buy it and then it probably goes higher because they don't buy it at the exact top. Then when it drops below their purchase price, they sell it. So they're always buying, you know, buying high and selling low. 
And I, I think that w- with respect to, to me, I have no ability to know exactly how much of the of the psychology around Bitcoin represents um, uh, froth that needs to be corrected. When I get asked when I get asked about the Bitcoin correction, and how low it would go. My comment was it'll go low enough to shake out all the people that don't really understand what they're doing and are afraid of losing money. And once they're gone, it'll start back up again. Yeah. Uh, and that's that, you know, the, that was apparently somewhere in the, you know, under 6,000 range did that. And now it's now it's going up for a while. Interesting. But so again, it, comes, it comes down to the fact that the investment, the reason that I that I bought it at, you know, my average cost is around three hundred and fifty dollars. The reason I bought it then was based on the long term right tail of that distribution. And that hasn't changed at all. The, what cha- the price has changed a lot. So the, the, the gains uh, aren't as great as they would have been. If everybody got it at $350, but this works. $10,000 will be a, you know, a perfectly acceptable price to get in at. So for me, the concern, I, well, I don't know if it's a concern or if it's a good thing or what, but let's say that Bitcoin's successful. Let's just go down that path for a second and say five years from now, Bitcoin price is fifty dollars to $100,000 per Bitcoin. And this is global money at this point. And it's global money that's easily exchanged around the world. And it's a fixed monetary baseline. Do you see loans? Because, I mean, at that point, everyone's going to want to be using Bitcoin, especially if they could drop the transaction fees, which I know that they're promising with the Lightning Network that that might be a possibility that these transaction fees go down. I mean, this is going to be a drastic change to economics around the world as we know it because who's going to want to use the dollar if if the central banks or or the euro if the central banks are just printing i mean this you got a supreme currency here if this would actually happen i mean i just i don't know what that would look like and i think that it's going to be a drastic transformation that i think no one really can comprehend if that is a true statement i'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on some of that I think that it's unlikely that Bitcoin would ever challenge any of the reserve currencies precisely because it's a it's it's got a fixed a fixed supply of it and it's got a fixed schedule by which it's it's issued that changes every four halves every four years. So that that in itself makes it, you know, uh, so every other currency in the world has some form of, of deflationary aspect to it in, in the sense of, of over a you know, long period of time. I mean, the Fed wants the, the dollar to depreciate by about 2%, you know, 2% a year to have the inflation rate. You know. And with Bitcoin having um, the exact opposite. So what Bitcoin does, if it, if it, quote, works as money, is it deflates hard assets and it deflates anything that's priced in its terms. So if Bitcoin, again, works the way that I think some of the evangelists think is uh, what, what happens as you hold it is the price of food, cars, houses, everything drops relative to Bitcoin. So it, it deflates all the all those other goods and goods and services. I think the problem with that is, and it's it's been pointed out, I think, by by monetary theorists, is that that, that kind of bakes into it then this this behavioral paradox to where you, you could theoretically reach a point where nobody wants to sell their Bitcoin, right? So it just goes, it goes just hyperbolic or parabolic up. And, uh, and then, so it can't be used for transactions because no one wants to transact in it. But then at some point, what happens is it reverses and then it collapses. So you, it, it has built into it much higher volatility than, than anything that usually would be thought of as, as money. But the, the idea that the, that the volatility by itself makes it not money is is you know ridiculous on its face because you can look at the 
Venezuelan Boulevard and see what's happened to it. And it's it's volatility or the German the German mark in the in the 1920s or the Zimbabwe Zimbabwe they they're extraordinarily volatile. They just happen to be collapsing all the time. Yeah. So, but they were they were money in legal tender in those countries. There's efforts underway. I think uh, you know I think the folks at the MIT you know uh, cryptocurrency lab are trying to devise a, a you know a, a coin which is I think they call it trade coin which is actually can be an alternative to to the reserve the reserve currencies and and a, and a better store of value and, and everything else. But um, I do think, as Susan Athey at Stanford said, that it, 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 Bitcoin can be a, a threat to, you know, the, the Venezuelan Bolivar, any of these countries that, that have their own currencies that aren't reserve currencies, and that, and that countries like Argentina, where, you know, they, they, they've seized your assets, they've, uh, they've inflated you out of uh, assets of banks, they've inflated you out uh, over the decades. Bob Schiller, I think, at, I think at Davos, Bob Schiller pointed out that he was in uh, in Lithuania, and the Lithuanians uh, were, were bullish on Bitcoin because they said, you know, you talked to many of them whose families, uh, when Russia took over Lithuania, the government seized their bank accounts. And they said that if you had, if you own stocks, then you were sent to Siberia. So, uh, but you were, you were all, you were wiped out, which, which can't happen if you get to an internet connection or you have a, you have a phone that, and Wi-Fi, you can, you can move those assets, those Bitcoin assets quick. Very interesting and very interesting hearing a value investor talking about Bitcoin like that. So, Bill, recently you gave an incredible, incredible generous donation to Johns Hopkins University of $75 million, specifically to the philosophy department. How has philosophy influenced your investment approach? And could you please elaborate on your thought process about philanthropy? Yeah, I, did, I didn't go to business school, so uh, you know I, did, I don't have that um, business school training. And I, I think that uh, that with with philosophy, the great benefit to me of philosophy, in addition to being, I, I think personally enriching uh, enriching my life, but the analytical techniques and the critical reasoning skills that are part and parcel of of philosophical analysis are absolutely what is you know what are incredibly valuable in capital markets, especially when you think about most people in capital markets suffer from some kind of confirmation bias to where once they've made up their mind on something, then, then the, the way they weight evidence and the way they look at things and feel like they have to defend it is it's just a natural psychological tendency. And, and it's not that everybody doesn't have that tendency because everybody does. But I think if, you're, if you spend several years in, in graduate school in philosophy, they, they pretty much knock that out of you because that's not that's not the way that the reasoning process works in uh, in philosophy. And so, when you when you have people with strong opinions on things, whether it be like Bitcoin or Amazon for so for so long, typically means that um, that those, those reasoning skills can can probably provide some insight that that can't be provided elsewhere. You know, the the Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein talked talked uh, many times about about crisscrossing the land in his in his philosophical investigations about crisscrossing the landscape and looking at problems from many different perspectives and, and angles. And then, and then even more practically, I, I, I'd mentioned somewhere that, that with respect to Bitcoin, I had gotten some insight from a, from a book by a very eminent philosopher named John Searle, who's out at Berkeley. And he wrote a book called The Construction of Social Reality. And it, it deals with, it, it deals with you know, things like money, marriage, property rights, things like that, that he considers you know, socially constructed. And he contrasts those with with things that he calls brute facts, which are facts that are true no matter if there if there are any people at all, like 
the, the, the earth is 93 million miles from the sun. Whereas, you know, that doesn't depend on people, but monetary systems do. I learned in philosophy from studying William James and John Dewey and Charles Sanders Peirce that, um, that the true-false dichotomy is not often very helpful. Uh, I, I, I found uh, Searle's book, whether what he said, whether there's anything he said in it which is true from a philosophical standpoint, it was very useful to me in, and, in illuminating Bitcoin. And so William James talked, that's, that's what the American pragmatists focused on was, you know, um, truth as usefulness. And, uh, and, and truth is part of a long-term quest and not something which is, you know, which is externally sort of immaculately conceived. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. Amazing. So with, with all that said, there's all these cognitive biases out there. I don't know if you've ever seen this chart that uh, the Visual Capitalist website put together, but they tried to list all these different cognitive biases. It was a really cool chart. In fact, we'll throw it in the show notes of this uh, interview so people can look at it. But I'm curious what your you've been around new investors. We got so many listeners of the show that are fresh out of college or they just completed an MBA. What cognitive bias do you think tricks a lot of new investors the most? Well, first of all, all of them trick investors and everybody is everybody is is subject to them to one degree or another. 
The two that I think probably combine to create the most problem are the recent or recency bias and uh, myopic loss aversion. So what happens is people in recency bias, as you know, people overweight the most recent information. And a lot of times that information is price action uh, and, and not fundamentals. But even when it's fundamentals, they'll tend to overweight it if it's negative or, or positive for that matter. So you get extremes on both sides. And then the, the loss aversion kicks in because, you know, it, it, it takes the coefficient of loss for most people is two to one. And so they have to have twice as many gains to offset, a, a, you know, a certain level of loss. And more importantly, they feel the pain of a loss twice as losses are twice as painful as uh, the same amount of gains. And so you put those two things together and it causes people to overreact dramatically to declining prices. And especially if they appear to be fundamentally, you know, fundamentally driven. And you see that over and over and over again. And, and one of the things that, you know, there's a study done of um, credit default swaps after the, after the financial crisis, because that was what people were, you know, keying in on is, is how risky were bonds, because what, what, what were the credit default swaps selling at? And what was the, the, the implied probability of the bond going, going under? And, um, and then after the whole thing was over and the, the markets had recovered, the academics, you know, looked at it and the credit default swaps had almost no predictive power with respect to defaults. They, over, they overestimated the defaults radically because we were in a financial crisis. And when the financial crisis you know, ended, then those probabilities completely reversed. I think that the most important message that I could tell investors, new investors especially, is that the economy grows most of the time and stocks go up most of the time. And so the risk to people's financial wealth long term is not the drawdowns that, that you get during the occasional correction or even the recession or even a financial crisis. It's, it's being underinvested systematically in equities during the periods when, when the market is going up, which is most of the time. Stocks have gone up 75% of the time, 75% of the years uh, since 1950, and the economy has grown 77% of the years since 1950. So if you had a probability of doing well 75% of the time, you had, a, you had a casino that had a 75% edge, you wouldn't be worried too much about the few times that you lost. But people are, are obsessively concerned, I you know, believe it's because of recency bias and, and loss aversion with those losses that they take during, you know, three months, six months, a year, or even two years. So let me ask you this. Do you feel that a person who's trying to protect against systematic risk meaning the whole credit cycle kind of evolves and, and starts to crash. Do you think a person that's trying to protect against that, is that a fool's game or is that something that you can actually hedge against by using moving averages or some other metric that you think would be important, like a uh, or when the bond yield curve inverts or something like that? I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on it. I, I think the question you have to um, get clarity on is what exactly are you trying to protect against? And so if, once, you, once you can definitively say, this is what I want to protect against, then you can come up with instruments that will, you know, that will probably do that in one fashion or another. And all the things that you mentioned, you know, have roles to play depending on what people are, what people are trying to do. So I, I think that I think if you're worried about, you know, steadily rising inflation, that's, you know, you want uh, floating rate bonds, you don't want fixed rate bonds. If you're worried about deflation, then you want fixed rate long term you know, bonds of one sort, one sort or another. So it all, it, it, it all depends on, on that. I, I think that, again, though, that I think that people way are way too sensitive to, to volatility and perceived risk. I mean, one of the things that we've done in, in our funds is that 
believed and it turned out to be correct that what would happen with the financial crisis would people would become, you know, risk and volatility phobic. If you could just make one, made one decision, uh, you know, 2008 or nine, it would be whatever the market thought was the riskiest thing, buy it and put it away. And that's, that would do really well over the next 10 years, which it's done. So in continuation of your point about the recency bias, have you heard a very popular belief out there in the markets, but where you also discounting the magnitude of what's being said? Whenever I hear sort of extreme predictions or, or predictions given with, with great emotion and emphasis, I would tend to believe that that's, those are probably wrong. Extreme things don't happen very often. And, uh, and also that having a dogmatic opinion in the market is a, is a very risky and dangerous thing to do. One of the, you know, one of the things that always, you know, annoys me when I hear it is um, when people say, "Well, the easy money's been made," and um, and I hear that a lot in defending after something's gone up a lot. And I, but I've never really, I've never heard anybody say there is easy money to be made doing this. <laughs> and so, I, you know, all those people that use that locution, I want them to tell me when there is easy money to be made. Because ordinarily, that's you know, I've probably seen that easy money has been made in this in this bull market, probably beginning you know six months after March of '09, and repeated repeatedly over the next eight or nine years that the easy money has been made. So I'm curious, what book would you say would you recommend for cognitive biases for people that are listening to this? Oh, I'd say probably you know um, Danny Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow is you know a, a very a very good assessment of a very good assessment of that. Yeah, I think I mean Ed Thorpe's book is is fantastic too. I would I would highly recommend that to people. I had I had lunch with Ed not long after the the long term capital management collapsed, and um, he said that that he had looked at that, and he said that the probability of ruin there was close as close to one as you could get, and not <laughs> not he said because basically that the amount of leverage that they were that they were using he said so and and the fact that those particular bets might have had a very high degree of probability, but it didn't take much to get them to go awry with that leverage to send you right over the right over the cliff. And he, he had nailed that one correctly. Yeah, he's uh wow, you talk about brilliant. Yes, you're you're right, sir. Very, very brilliant. But Bill, thank you. Seriously, thank you so much for coming on our show. It is such an honor to have you here and just to kind of pick your brain for an hour is just very, very thankful for that. So thank you, sir. Oh, thanks. Great. All right, so this is the point in the show where we're going to go ahead and play a question from a member of the audience. And this question comes from Lisa Wu. Hi, President Stick. My name is Lisa. I'm a university undergraduate student. I really enjoy listening to your podcast and listen to them every week. I just want to say thank you first for providing the society such a great opportunity to learn more about finance and the stock market. So my question is, we all know about the baby boomers and we all know that they are approaching an age of retirement. So my question is, what do you think as the baby boomer generation is approaching retirement as their capital gets released to the society? What do you think that effect is going to be on the stock market or the economy in general? Thank you. I think the bigger concern for that generation is just the lack of yield that they can get on their retirement. I think that for me, that's the bigger story. I think moving forward, getting you know 3% yield for somebody who's in retirement and they're trying to live off of that, I think is a very big concern. I guess I try to 
sway my bias of the stock market is bound to crash when I say this. But whenever I look at some of the stats, you know, we're looking at 1.5 million Americans turning 70 just last year. And over the next 15 years, you'll continue to see something like that. And the thing is that generation have a lot of the portfolio in equities. We're talking upwards of 70%. And that's a lot, especially because, as Preston mentioned before, you don't have a lot of yield. So the stat I'm looking at here, and I guess you can find similar stats or they would say less or more, but here it says that the average boomer has only 136,000 saved for retirement. So whenever you have that kind of money or you don't have that kind of money, because it's not a lot to live off whenever you retire, you know, I can see why you would take riskier investments. So you might keep being in stocks, even though what I think might happen is that a lot of baby boomers might look at higher yield opportunities, which will entail a lot of risk, especially in these times where the yields are so low. So if you say that the average person would need something like 45,000 a year, even lower than that, you would need a lot of yield for this huge generation that's all coming out at the same time to sustain a decent way of living. And just one thing I would like to add to this, and I guess something that might be even more concerning is, if you look at some of the RS mandatory minimum drawdowns, for your retirement plans, you know, your RAs and 401ks, you know, you are forced to withdraw at least 5% of the value of the plan each year. And if a lot of people are forced to do that, you know, it's, it's just going to have a significant impact on the market the way that I see this. Now, this is the trick. You know, it's, it's very easy to look at this story and say, you know, this means that the market will crash. You're saying, you know, the price of the stock market, it's demand and supply. This will mean that a lot of people are selling out. The price has to go down. And why that is true, if you look at this isolated, that's not necessarily what will happen. Because you have a lot of other players out there that have a different opinion and a different incentive to take this in another direction. One thing might be that you have central banks and they know that this is going to happen. So what are they going to do when everyone is just selling out? Okay, they might put a lot of liquidity out there. What is the government going to do? Well, they'll probably do a lot of fiscal policy and, and really grow the economy to spike growth. So it's one of those, this one factor isolated, yes, that should mean that we will have a significant bear market, but it's only in isolation. So Lisa, awesome, insightful question. Thank you so much for uh, recording it and putting it there on the show. To show you our appreciation, we want to give you our intrinsic value course that we have on our TIP Academy uh, page on our website. This is typically a paid course, but we're going to give it to you completely for free just to show you our thanks. And for anybody else out there, if you want to get your question played on the show and get a free course, go to asktheinvestors.com. You can record your question. It'll only take a minute and uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right, guys, that was all the Preston and I had for this week's episode of The Investors Podcast. we see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Thank <laughs> you.